Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at agendas and mandates for this third term of Liberal National Government and the Ministerial Code of Conduct. What's the point of having one if it's ignored by political leaders? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. And I'm David Lewis. Tonight I'm wearing a Gucci backless evening gown in red sequins with brogues by John Carandonis. Thanks for asking. The third term of the Liberal National Government is underway, but it seems like it's a government that's reaching for an agenda it never took to an election campaign, and it's arguing its case for a mandate to implement unaffordable tax cuts in the year 2025 and beyond. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has announced he wants to revisit industrial relations, cut red tape, scale back the rights of green groups that stand in the way of mining projects, and implement the legislation that not too many people want or care about, a Religious Discrimination Act. We always get these debates about mandates and agendas just after an election, but we closely followed the recent campaign and there wasn't much discussion about industrial relations, red tape, green tape or any other colour of tape, and there certainly wasn't much of a debate about religious freedom in Australia. Is it really that important for political parties to outline their agenda during an election campaign, or should they just get on with governing after they've won the election? Have we lost the idea of what a mandate actually is? I think we have. I mean, I think they expected to lose. Everybody else expected them to lose. The campaign was really an attempt to save as many uh, seats as they could and perhaps get control of the Senate. Having said that, I think there were a few people in the party who thought that the party could win and were proven right that the party could win by the targeting of particular seats. We came into a government, though, with a government without much idea of what it wanted to do and without much idea of how it wanted to do it. Um, it has its 100-point IPA suggestions for the, for the running of the country, but those are things that aren't terribly popular, even amongst its supporters. It includes things like selling off Medicare, selling off the uh, ABC, cutting all uh, awards uh, and, and wages, selling off SBS. There's a lot of selling off, there's a lot of breaking down, there's a lot of removal, there's not a lot of build in it. The religious discrimination thing does two things. One, it speaks to something that I think is genuinely important to the Prime Minister. Two, it also allows old debates that have never been resolved, at least have never been resolved to the satisfaction of the government and at least the right wing of the Liberal Party to be quietly reignited underneath the whole religious discrimination is one, a bit of a kickback on the same-sex marriage plebiscite and I think too, Section 18C, uh, the free speech amendment of the Act, which they've been trying to repeal since before uh, Andrew Bolt was found in breach of it in the courts. And I think underneath it all, no one's mentioned 18C yet, but I think underneath it all, it's there. And I'm sure they'll have a look at Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act as part of the ongoing culture wars. Politics is usually a psychological process and played through bluff and mind games, and every political party has to go into an election thinking that it can win that election. And if it goes into an election thinking that it's going to lose, well, it's more than likely going to lose that election. 
Irrespective of how far behind they are or how likely they are to lose, they need to keep thinking that they are going to win. Otherwise, there's no point in turning up. And that's exactly what happened with Scott Morrison and the Liberals. But when it comes to the agenda, if you're so worried about trying to win an election, it's almost like the agenda takes a back seat. And the electorate usually forgets about what was promised during an election campaign or where the origin of a policy idea came from. It was actually Scott Morrison and preceding him, Joe Hockey, that first thought about scaling back negative gearing. It's, it's actually a very generous policy and it does need to be scaled back, but it was Labor that was actually copying all of the flack for it. And of, of course they would have, because they were the ones that ran strongly on the negative gearing policy during the election campaign. Now, hypothetically, in two years' time, Scott Morrison could potentially introduce Labor's negative gearing policy in full, and the electorate would probably forget or ignore that he'd actually performed a backflip. In the heat of an election campaign, there are so many issues, so many factors, there's campaign fatigue, there's political switch-off. The electorate generally forgets about these issues from a campaign. In 1983, during the Hawke-Keating era, there were so many policies they introduced relating to deregulation and flooding of the Australian dollar, they never took these policy issues to an election, and it seemed to work for them. But for John Howard, after he won the 2004 election, he introduced the work choices policy, which wasn't taken to the electorate, and that worked against him. Three years later, he was out of office. General wisdom is that John Howard did the one thing you can't do to any Australian, that's threaten your uh, public holidays. He never claimed any of that, but that he was going to take away public holidays. But the opposition were able to put enough doubt into people's head that these things would come under threat. And, of course, having seen penalty rates cut as of uh, 1st of July this year, it certainly is a thing that work choices could have led to. I think it's very interesting as they're now struggling to work out their policies in, in a detailed way, in a way that can be legislated and expressed in a proper way. It's also interesting to see this discussion about what a mandate is. So the Liberal National Party at the moment, it just it has a bare one-seat majority. You could argue it's one or, or two seats, depending on how you assess the value of the Speaker in the House. But either way, it's a very slim margin. Tony Abbott, when the Liberals won government back in 2013, he had a majority of around 40 seats. So who would have the greater authority over Parliament and within the Liberal Party? Scott Morrison, who's got a very bare majority, or someone like Tony Abbott, who had a 40-seat majority? These are questions that always need to be asked and interpreted after an election result. Scott Morrison certainly has greater authority within the Liberal Party, but over the Parliament, I'm not so sure about that. I don't think you can take his majority seats for granted, and no prime minister can. All it takes is one crossbencher to change their mind for any kinds of reasons, on a genuine principle, for ego, for ambition, because they've been talked into it and have, have liked the public profile that they've got. And suddenly the prime minister's in an untenable position. One thing that makes the Gillard minority government interesting is that she got through more legislation per day than any other government. The current government isn't interested in breaking such records. They're not sitting anywhere near enough to be able to debate a lot of legislation procedurally properly. And 
they don't have a lot of a, of a legislative mandate. Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party, they're very keen to look forward and forget about the past. But there's been a couple of books that have come out recently. There's two books, Highway to Hell by Nikki Saver and Venom by David Crow. So they're great titles. Now, these are two insiders from News Limited, although David Crow is now with the Sydney Morning Herald. These outline the, the issues about how Scott Morrison did actually become Prime Minister back in August 2018. Scott Morrison doesn't really want to talk about this. He refers to this as the Canberra bubble and its history. He's more interested in the future rather than the past. But there's been a couple of very interesting things that have come out of these publications. So in one of the books, former minister Michael Keenan, he reveals that Scott Morrison is an absolute arsehole. Now, we do encourage honesty in politics, but do you think that Michael Keenan might be going just a little bit too far and he's, he's being too honest? He's stepped down, of course, so he's free to say what he wants. <laughs> you don't become prime minister by making friends precisely. You have to make some enemies. Based on the, the reviews I've read of the books and the journalism I've read about the books, it's pretty clear that Scott Morrison is a ruthless operator. Although you don't become prime minister unless you are a ruthless operator. Exactly. The difference between, say, him and a Paul Keating or him and a John Howard is that we knew more or less what Paul Keating and John Howard and Kevin Rudd, who was also very ruthless and highly ambitious, we knew more or less what they stood for. We have a fair idea of what Scott Morrison stands for in a broad sense, but again, we don't quite know what the details are as yet, apart from religious discrimination, whatever that is in Australia. The government is very keen to look forward, but we'd like to look backwards just a little bit. Malcolm Turnbull replaced Tony Abbott. Scott Morrison replaced Malcolm Turnbull. The Liberals and the Nationals were divided. They all changed their leaders. They were quite a terrible government. The economy was stumbling, yet somehow they still won the election. It's almost like they've been rewarded for their incompetence. Scott Morrison keeps saying, well, nobody cares about this. It's all in the past. It's all ancient history. But one issue that could become a big factor in this next term for the Liberal Party is complacency and the belief that the government has become electorally invincible. Looking far, far away into the past, complacency and feelings of invincibility have been issues that have appeared in the final stages of long-term governments. For the Liberal Party between 1980 and 1983, they kept on thinking that issues related to the dismissal of Gough Whitlam in 1975 would probably keep Labor out of office forever. The final years of Labor between 1993 and 1996 had all the hallmarks of a tied government and they thought that they'd be in office forever as well. The same thing happened with the final term of the Howard government between 2004 and 2007. Now, the, all of these governments won elections that they were expected to lose and they, after these elections they felt invincible and they felt that they could deal with whatever was thrown at them by the media and by the opposition. And this ultimately became their Achilles heel. Each of these governments were thrown out in the landslide losses at the next election. Now Scott Morrison has good reason to feel invincible. He's just won the unwinnable election. But the Liberals in 1980 and 2007 and the Labor government in 1996, these were all competent and stable governments. 
Morrison still leads a divided party and there's a feeling of, well, we've just won an election by changing leaders and we've been quite an incompetent rabble as well. Can we expect to see more of the same over the next term of government? It, what they need to remember is that they didn't so much win the election as Bill Shorten lost the election or the Labor Party lost the election. And there's a slight difference. They weren't warmly embraced like, say, uh, Howard in 96 or even Abbott in uh, 2013 or suddenly Kevin Rudd in 2007. They, they won the most seats. And I think that this is where the overreach comes in. It's easy to think the majority likes you and psychologically that means everybody must like you, except for a few, you know, the, the people you meet on the street who that's part of the rough and tumble of politics or on social media or, you know, phone calls or what have you. But it's very easy to overrate your success. And sometimes that level of complacency can be built up through media support as well. It's, it's no surprise to suggest the mainstream media generally supports Liberal MPs and Liberal governments. That's who the proprietors support and that's usually how their media is directed. Well, they have journalists acting more like courtiers than balanced reporters, but that's another issue. Nothing presents this better than Scott Morrison's return from the recent G20 meeting. He was lauded by the mainstream media, the West Australian gave him a 10 out of 10 for his appearance at G20. All he really did was shake hands with murderous Saudi dictators and invite Donald Trump to Australia for a game of golf. The same with Tony Abbott at Davos in 2014. He was pretty much a non-event over there, but was rewarded with glowing media reports when he returned. Julia Gillard, on the other hand, during her first international visit in 2010, she was pilloried by the media for not having enough international or foreign affairs experience. Perhaps with the wind in his sails, Scott Morrison can be confident that he can do whatever he wants in this next term. Julia Gillard was invited to extra meetings and, and met extra world leaders, which neither Tony Abbott nor Scott Morrison were. Now, again, I'm that is really neither here nor there in a sense in that it was their first time at, at this type of stuff. But the contrast is a bit striking. Well, it's just that Scott Morrison, Tony Abbott and Julia Gillard roughly have the same level of international experience, which is close to, close to zero. Yeah. But it's just interesting to see two male prime ministers, two liberal prime ministers go overseas on their first visits and they, they return as heroes. Yeah, exactly. You can achieve a lot with a soft press. <laughs> when Wayne Swan got Finance Minister of the Year, there was a lot of press on how it wasn't a real award and how it didn't count and how it didn't, you know, these things are meaningless baubles given out by overseas organisations who don't understand. When Greg Hunt got Environment Minister from the Year, this was, you know, a great achievement for the government, even though it was given by Saudi oil producers who aren't known for their care for the environment. We have a press that leans to the right. It's not all right. A lot of independent media leans to the left. The ABC runs an impossible line trying to be all things to everyone and doesn't succeed in that at all. But the main media, the media that people see most, tends to the right. Private organisations, of course, can have whatever opinions they like and pay for whatever opinions they like, but it is problematic in a society that needs debate and discussion. 
You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the Ministerial Code of Conduct. How effective is it? And does it need to be improved? In August 2018, soon after he became Prime Minister, Scott Morrison introduced a new set of ministerial standards. In this document, we have the usual information we'd expect to see in ministerial standards. Integrity, principles, fairness, accountability, responsibility and public interest. But it's a bit like the constitution of the old Soviet Union, which talked about protecting human rights and dignity, while in the background, political prisoners were shipped off to Siberia and people in the provinces such as Chechnya were being bombed and murdered by the Red Army. Essentially, a ministerial code of conduct doesn't mean anything because MPs and former ministers can get away with it quite easily. But there's one clear code that stipulates that former ministers shouldn't take employment in an industry directly relating to their portfolio within 18 months of leaving Parliament. Former Defence Minister Christopher Pine has taken up a consultancy with Ernst & Young as part of their desire to expand their footprint in the defence industry. Christopher Pine only left Parliament a few months ago, and it seems like it's a clear breach of the Ministerial Code of Conduct, but he's still acting as a consultant. What's the point of this Code of Conduct if it can't be implemented? There's a bit of a media trope that says that the Code of Conduct is way too strict and way too high for any human being to be able to meet. I don't think there is. It basically says, be honest, don't rot your entitlements, avoid conflicts of interest, and you know, basically serve the good of the Parliament of Australia and the Commonwealth of Australia. There may be little technical things that might be a bit much. Um, they have things like the so-called Minchin Protocol, where if you make a mistake, you don't have to resign. And mistakes, of course, are easily made. The rules are complex, and members are very busy and there's a lot of paperwork, and sometimes you do genuinely put down things that you shouldn't. And if the Minchin Protocol was applied equally across the board, we wouldn't really have a problem. And, you know, maybe you only get two breaches before you can't do it again. Although we did have that selective application of the Minchin Code to former Speaker Peter Slipper. Exactly. For a $900 taxi bill, you know, maybe you did the wrong thing, but others had done worse for more, yet yeah, were able to uh, use the Minchin protocol to pay back their mistake. It has to be absolutely 100% consistent. Otherwise, it just becomes a political weapon. John Howard was the first Prime Minister to implement a code of ministerial conduct back in 1996. He did campaign on clean government because he kept on pushing the idea that the Labor-Keating government was corrupt and dirty. After he introduced that code of conduct, after he became Prime Minister in 1996, he ended up losing seven ministers over various aspects such as shareholdings, travel rorts, and that was within the first nine months of his Prime Ministership. We have all kinds of issues now. Peter Dutton's wife's holdings, he made sure that everybody knew he had divested himself of the family trust. It's still his wife's. And th this is a grey area, of course, 
But if they were to divorce, and I'm certainly not wishing that they do it, and I know nothing about their personal circumstance, and this is just a hypothetical, her income and his income and holdings and assets are all measured to see who has to pay whom what. I don't think she would walk straight away with the business necessarily. She may. I don't. Again, I don't know the, the details. Well, you did say that the most important thing with any code of conduct is to have consistency. Now, it was introduced back in 1996 by John Howard. Previously, it was just a matter of opinion of the Prime Minister of the day and essentially what they could get away with. But I think there were tougher political standards. Back in 1982, Liberal ministers John Moore and Michael McKellar, they were forced to resign because they incorrectly filled out a customs form stating that they imported a black and white TV when it was actually a colour TV. Now, there were other reasons why Malcolm Fraser decided to act upon these two. Both of those ministers were not competent, but he used that as a reason to get rid of them. Mick Young was stood down over a false declaration over a Paddington Bear in 1984. He wasn't forced to resign, but was stood down while an investigation into the Paddington Bear took place. After the inquiry, Bob Hawke put him back into the ministry. But these were relatively minor incidents, not too much to get carried away with. But that was in the early 1980s. Filling out an incorrect form or bringing in a teddy bear from an overseas trip could make you lose your ministerial position. These days, it seems to be quite different. Christopher Pine, he probably should resign from his contract with Ernst & Young. It's a clear breach of the ministerial code of conduct. You're not meant to work in an area that directly relates to your portfolio for at least 18 months after you've left Parliament. He should cancel his contract. Oh, he should never have uh, considered it. He's on a good pension, so as if he needs the money. And I don't really like the fact that he's gone into defence. It doesn't seem to me to be the best choice all around. So it does get back to the reasons behind having a code of conduct in the first place. What's the point of a code if it can't be acted upon or implemented? Other critics have mentioned that it's only a code, it's not a piece of legislation or law, and it really is up to the Prime Minister of the day to decide whether the code has been breached or not. But is this acceptable or, or not? It's similar to other codes of conduct. There's a code of conduct for journalists, of course, but that's always broken and there's rarely a sanction against a journalist or a publisher that has breached the code. There's also a building code, and after the problems we've seen in Sydney with the cracking in the Opal Towers and the Mascot Towers, codes in any area need to be solid and enforceable. Buildings falling apart, journalists writing factually incorrect information, politicians behaving corruptly. What's the point of having codes of conduct if there's no way to make sure that they're being adhered to? It shows the failure of self-regulation and the failure of some market theory in that the idea was, is, well, of course, they'll follow the code, otherwise they'll go broke. Of course, that doesn't happen because often, like with the Opal Towers, people bought the, the units in, in good faith, thinking that they will have made a basic building standard, and they didn't. Now, as to why, we don't know, but it looks like they bought buildings that were fundamentally flawed. The journalism, we could probably go to 20 articles in today's so-called quality papers and probably a similar number in the quality television and find articles that breach the code of conduct. 
to which there will be little to no consequence. And that leads into another factor. Once you've read an article in a newspaper or watched a report on television, you can't unread the article you've just read or unsee the vision that you've just seen on a screen. Once information is out there in the public domain, it's very difficult to undo it. And there's also the authority and the veracity of the media. The public is generally very trusting of what they view in newspapers and television reports, and that's why it's essential to have information that is factually correct and backed up with a strong and enforceable code of conduct. There's also... There hasn't been any word on a National Integrity Commission as well. Scott Morrison did promise one in December 2018. It wasn't actually discussed very much during the election campaign, but it's almost like that's been forgotten about. An Integrity Commission isn't the same as NICAC because integrity is a bit fungible. It's a little bit like jazz. We all know what it isn't. <laughs> we might not be able to say what it is, but we all know what it is. Whereas, a, you know, corruption is a lot easier to legislate against. It's a lot easier to put down parameters for. I suspect even going on these looser terms, I suspect that a lot of government ministers might not be able to make even a, a basic level and possibly a lot of opposition and, and independence as well. Let's not pour all the blame on one side. Um, that's not fair. And of course, I'm sure there are members who are, you know, who do behave properly, who do work very hard, who do try their very best to work in the best interests of everyone. And we don't tend to hear about them. <laughs> and we might not agree with them either, which is the other thing. Sometimes people confuse disagreement with right and wrong. And sometimes there are developing issues in politics that don't need to wait for the creation of an integrity commission or a corruption commission to have further investigation. Senate inquiries can be very powerful and perhaps there's a need for another one just around the corner. Watergate is an issue that first became prominent before the federal election. It involved Minister Angus Taylor and the Nationals' Barnaby Joyce. But it seems like it's permeated from federal politics into New South Wales state politics. It now involves the wife of Angus Taylor, his brother, his sister-in-law, who just happens to also be a minister in the New South Wales government. Angus Taylor should be fronting up somewhere to explain himself, but I'm not sure where. The media has dropped this entire Watergate issue, but it needs further investigation. In the absence of a national ICAC, maybe there needs to be a Senate inquiry into Watergate. There's been a lot of very good work on the corruption of this. We, we are looking at very serious real-world real consequences too. Um, the drying up of the, the Murray-Darling Basin. The lack of accountability in this and the names it's the same names that keep coming up under a slightly different media setup there'd be a lot more outrage and there'd be a lot more uh, again consequence i think too this might be too big an issue to be able to be covered up it's not continual rotting of the travel system which can be covered up and public servants can say well actually no rules were breached because they changed the rules in you know 2017 or whenever whenever, so this is actually quite fine. I think that this may bubble over to be worse and, and might be one of those things that brings the government down.
We're coming up to the end of this month's episode, but there's just a few other issues of interest in politics. In New South Wales, Jody McKay has been elected leader of the New South Wales Labor Party through a formula of 50% vote from the New South Wales caucus and 50% vote from the rank and file membership. It's the second occasion a Labor leader has been elected in this way. It takes a little bit of time, but it seems like it's a good way to select a leader. The British Conservative Party also has a membership vote for its leader, and they're going through that same process right now. Their MPs choose two candidates, and the membership makes a choice between these two candidates. Is it time for the Liberal Party to also follow this format? I I think it's working quite well. Years ago, the Democrats, when the Democrats were in, they would have a vote for the leader by the general populace. This didn't work so well because it was all right if the leader was liked by the members of parliament who he or she had to deal with. But if they weren't, you'd end up stuck with someone who maybe didn't perform very well one-on-one but was able to to win over the crowd. Um, And this happened on at least one occasion. And that, of course, creates tensions and divisions and and things that aren't good for any political party. The, The Conservative Party generally ends up with the least disliked candidate. Now, we may be looking at a precedent breaking here, but John Major was certainly not the front runner. That was supposed to be Michael Heseltine, but it becomes John Major. Theresa May wasn't in the race till right at the end. It was supposed to be someone else. You end up getting the person who you can live with rather than the person that most people want which of course might be a better way of doing it because populist figures, as we might see with Boris Johnson, which we have seen with Donald Trump, aren't always the best choice. Sometimes you want a a steadier pair of hands. It does seem like it's a good practice to involve more people within the democratic process, although it's a process in this case that involves direct party membership rather than the general community. It's not like the US primaries where, in many states, registered voters can participate without being attached to a particular political party. Ever since the Labor Party introduced meaningful rank-and-file engagement with choosing the leader, and ever since the Conservative Party introduced a similar process in Britain, membership of those respective parties has increased dramatically. The more people that you have within a political party, the more engagement that you have from a party membership, the better it is for the entire democratic system. I do see that. Both sides having a say is good. And yeah, the um, party saying to the members, look, these are the two that we can live with. Which one do you like? I think is a, a better solution than here the members choose and could be a better solution. And I'm thinking of people like Simon Crean or Bill Shorten, who were liked within the party, but not so much outside the party. I suspect that You'd need the current leader, whoever that is, to want to change it. Well, it seems like these processes are normally implemented as as an accident of history. Kevin Rudd brought in these rules for the Labor Party. Scott Morrison also brought in the the leadership rule for the Liberal Party. This is after the challenge challenge or the series of challenges in August 2018. So it seems like there's not going to be a groundswell of support that comes in from within the community or within the party. It's usually an event that happens for the leader to to make these sort of changes. It's unlikely it will happen in the Liberal Party for some time unless the need arises. I think it would be a good thing for them to do. 
Now on to on to another related matter. So he's only been Labor leader for one month, but there are complaints being made about Anthony Albanese being a disappointment and not being a suitable leader. So this is all under after less than one month. But the criticisms are that he's not standing up on key Labor issues and he's equivocating on passing the government's tax cuts package. Anthony Albanese is from the left, but the accusation is that he's taking the party to the right, too far to the right for some people. It's only been one month. Politics is a long haul and it's another 35 months before the next federal election. Is this early criticism just a normal part of putting a new leader under, under the microscope and will it dissipate once Parliament reconvenes and more attention is placed on the government? Anthony Albanese is having a reverse honeymoon. Normally you get a month or so of you can do no wrong. And your mistakes can be made as you feel your way into the job and find your own style of of running it. Anthony has disappointed already people who you'd think would be his supporters. And the whole tax cuts things, I can see from a tactical point of view, I think what they're trying to do in that they get them out of the way and then let the government wear the bad news for the next three years and they can take it to the election. Another way of doing it would be to block them and just be a continual thorn in the side. Having said that, people, I think, remember Tony Abbott, who did that and turned out to be not a terribly popular prime minister. It's being leader of either the Liberal Party or the Labour Party is balancing so many contradictory factions, so many contradictory members, as in the Shoppies Union, which is hard right and religiously conservative, the CMFEU, which is further to the left, general members who aren't active members of unions, rural members, urban members, people who like federation, people who don't like federation, people who like states, people who don't like states, the state parties, and the varying interests of different states. The South Australian Labor Party is a different beast to the New South Wales Labor Party. Victoria is different again. Queensland is different again. And the federal leader has to balance all of these members and try and keep everyone relatively happy, which is, of course, a very difficult job and true of the Liberal Party too. Bill Shorten also had problems when he first became leader in 2013. So did Brendan Nelson when he first became opposition leader in 2007. Being the opposition leader after your party has just lost an election is probably the most thankless task in politics. At the time, critics complained about Shorten not being Anthony Albanese, who was the rank-and-file choice in that 2013 leadership ballot, but he steadied the ship. Ultimately, he was not a successful leader, he never became the Prime Minister, but he did stabilise the Labor Party. Although they lost the 2016 and the 2019 elections, they are still now within reach of government at the next election, with a margin of only eight seats. Perhaps the criticism of Albanese is the essence of becoming the leader of the opposition after an election defeat. It probably will start to dissipate once the media becomes occupied with other matters. Certainly there's that while they're focusing on everything. And 2019 was a devastating election for the Labor Party in the same way 2007 was devastating for the Liberal Party. You know, you lose elections, you win elections, and it's good and it's bad. But they were expecting to win. 1969 election for Labor is another one that springs to mind, the one that John Gorton scraped back in. These really devastating ones, and they tend to happen more on the Labor side, although they've 
one less election, so there'd be a, a statistical bump towards them. These devastating elections have a real impact. It's always possible for a political party to regroup after a devastating election loss. They always seem to come back after five or six years. There's always the obituaries written up about the political party when they've suffered a bad loss, but they do return. Sometimes it takes longer than they expect, sometimes it's sooner. The coalition was dead and buried after the 2007 election, yet six years later, Tony Abbott leads them to the biggest landslide victory ever. The same for Kevin Rudd, landslide victory in 2007 after a devastating loss in 2004. There is that cliche about a week being a long time in politics, but three years? In political terms, it's like going to the edge of the universe and then coming back. It's only been a month since the last election and so many more factors will come into play between now and the next election, whenever that is. And as we do like to say, anything can happen and anything will happen. I don't think it will be as long as a full term. I don't want to say definitely it's not going to be, but I I think we may be going to an early election in 18 months or two years rather than going the full three. But we'll see. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating or a review. It helps other listeners find the program. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.